Startup Life Hacks, Episode 9. And every one of them came out going, oh, those Uggs are so fake, man. Have you have you seen their ads? Those <laughs> What are those? those? Those models, they can't surf. And, and I went, oh, my God, it like hit me like a brick. Welcome. Welcome to Startup Life Hacks. Ever wondered if you have what it takes to start a business? Join us as we share with you inspiring stories from these amazing entrepreneurs. Let their journeys bring you one step closer to achieving success. And now, here's your host, Romel Cabal. What is up, Hacker Nation? This is Romel Cabal, your favorite host, and I'm excited to introduce you to our next guest. We're going to change it up a bit and bring you someone who has been in the scene for quite a while to give you insights on how he grew his brand to exceed $1 billion of international sales times over. You may recognize him as the man behind the boot, Uggboost to be specific. A passionate innovator and entrepreneur, Brian is one of the most sought-after business leaders in the country today. He's even applied his coaching skills on the field as he was invited to coach the rugby team in San Diego State University that would eventually go on to win a national championship. So you can tell how excited I am to introduce you to the founder of UGG, Brian Smith. But before we get to the interview, I'd like to share how we met. There was an event at SDSU hosted by the Entrepreneur Society Club with Brian Smith as a speaker. I thought, hey, it would be awesome to hear about how Ugg got started, and maybe I could learn something from his experiences. I attended his inspirational talk and watched as people came up to him to take selfies and pictures to post on Facebook and Instagram. When a last student took their photo, I kindly stepped up and introduced myself and what I was trying to do with this podcast and the value his story would give to my listeners. To my surprise, he was more than happy to help out. He then gave me his personal contact info And I walked out of that room like a boss. And then something happened. I stopped halfway to my car, remembered what just happened, and began to hate myself for what I had forgotten. I forgot to take a selfie with him. So without further ado, please welcome to the mic, Brian Smith. Hey, Romel. Great to be on the show. Uh, Always love talking to entrepreneurs, and uh, it's my passion. And uh, most of the stuff we'll be talking about today is in my book, which is called The Birth of a Brand, and it's available on Amazon. So it's sort of a summary of all of the highs and lows of, of, uh, you know, what every entrepreneur can look for. And and believe me, it's, it's the journey. It's not the result that is the fun of being an entrepreneur. So how can I start you out? Give me a question to start you out or start me out. All right. Well, here at Startup Life Hacks, we concentrate on the journey on the entrepreneur. Each person has their own unique path that brought them to where they are today. What was your upbringing like? What was your professional personal history that makes you perfect for what you're doing right now? Sure. I, I was a typical kid growing up in middle class Australia. And the difference between me and all my siblings is I was the one always getting into trouble, like with my parents and always being reprimanded and, you know, lockdown and all you know because I always had this curious spirit and it was never ill meaning it was just you know out there so I think I always had that that you know character makeup to be breaking the rules and I think that's what every good entrepreneur needs but after I 
finished high school, you know, I, I did too much sport and, you know, chasing girls and stuff. So I didn't get a, a university entrance uh, pass. So I had to figure out what sort of job could I do in the meantime. And I decided to become an accountant. And back then there was no vocational guidance and I should never have been an accountant, but I did. And that, uh, because I was working in the daytime and studying at night, it took me 10 years to graduate. And the day I graduated is the day I quit being an accountant. And uh, I knew there was more. So I, I, that, that was really the beginning of me discovering that, hey, I've got to get out of this place and find something that I can do for myself. Mm -hmm. Now, there are, there are plenty of people out there who graduated with degrees that don't even use it. So yeah, <laughs> you're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what I did is I, I, I started meditating one day because I just discovered yoga. This is like 30 years ago, more. And uh, it came to me that all the cool brands were coming out of California, like Levi jeans and waterbeds and all the surf clothing brands and everything. And so I just decided I'm going to go to California and find the next big thing to bring back to Australia. And uh, I did. And uh, I was here for like a month and, you know, then two months. And I was surfing at Malibu near, nearly every day. And, and, and then in the third month, a buddy of mine was over. Uh, we were going to go surfing. And, and he brought with him a copy of Surfer magazine. And I was flicking through it and I, I just stopped dead on this one page. My whole body, body got goosebumps. And it was a photograph of these legs up in front of a fireplace with sheepskin boots. And I just went, oh, my God, there are no sheepskin boots in America. And at that time, one in two Australians had some sort of sheepskin footwear. And so that was the instead of me finding something in America to take to Australia, you know, we called up the manufacturer and, uh, you know, we talked him into letting us be the distributor for his, for his boots. And uh, that was the beginning of UGG. So it certainly wasn't rocket science. Now, most of us had an idol were growing up. Did you have an idol, at least a mentor that kind of showed you the ropes? Um, not really, because in Australia, it's like America was founded by people, you know, leaving oppression and they all came here broke and uh, anyone who made it was looked up to and revered and so um, you know all these captains of industry um, were all like oh my god look how they look how, how rich they got we can do that we can do that but in Australia they were all all the early settlers were convicts and they were part of this really brutal police state and the only people who made it ahead did so by ratting on their friends to the to the guards or the police, and the, you know they got special favors. So culturally, Australia grew up that anyone who's made it um, doesn't deserve to be there. And let's try and rip him down. It's called the tall poppy syndrome. It's, you can imagine a field of poppies, and one sticking up taller than all the rest. You know, Australians want to rip out and cut it down. So. The, it wasn't like I had any great idols in in Australia that I looked up to, but you know, as I've matured now, there are certainly, you know, people that I do admire who have been in business, and uh, but more so people who I admire in life more than business, because business is just a small part of living. So it's kind of like that concept of the the crab in a bucket, where someone tries to yeah do their own thing, and then the other crab tries to bring it yeah, down. Very right, yeah, yeah. Right. 
So we live in San Diego. What are a few of your favorite hobbies? Okay, a perfect week. Uh, I'll do yoga at least twice. I do hot yoga. Um, I go to the gym twice, and uh, all the in-between times I'll surf if there is waves. So that that's my ideal healthy lifestyle. <laughs> Great. So we are now going to concentrate on how this business got started, and maybe some of our listeners can use the same tactics if they ever decide to start their own venture. So what strategies did you use to fund your business? <laughs> we didn't know what a strategy was back then. Um, when <laughs> Let's I, go for it. Yeah, when I discovered that, you know, we made that phone call to to Perth in Western Australia to get, you know, the boots. You know, Doug and I looked at each other and said, well, have, you know, have you got any money? I said, no, you have it, you? No. So we, we borrowed 500 bucks to buy the first samples from the manufacturer and uh, brought them in, and and that was really what that was our initial funding. And we went on the road, uh, or Doug did. I was a, an accountant. I hated selling, but he went on the road and came back about a week later, and he had like two hundred business cards from every single shoe retailer that he'd been to in California, and not a single order. And and everyone's telling him, "You're crazy. Why are you you uh, trying to sell sheepskin in California?" And uh, I thought, you know, they're wrong because Australia's climate's exactly the same as California. But I, I went to a uh, right then. I went to a trade show in New York, thinking that maybe the the attitude to sheepskin over there is different. But in like three days, nobody talked to me because they didn't even recognize, you know, sheepskin as a category in the footwear industry. And it wasn't until I was on the plane back from that show back to San Diego, uh, or I, I was living in Santa Monica at the time, back to LA. Um, that I thought, well, how come all my friends think it's such a cool idea? And I realized that they were all surfers. And back in the 60s and 70s, one in, you know, every every Australian or every American surfer that went to Australia brought back four or five pairs of sheepskin boots for their buddies. And so it was really well known in the surf community. So my buddy Doug and I switched gears and we went to sell all the surf shops. And Straight out of the bat, you know, every store I walked into, um, you know, was sort of nervous and timid, but they'd go, oh, my God, Ugg boots, yeah, well, you, you guys going to bring those into America? You are going to make a fortune. And, <laughs> and you know, the next store, oh, great, Ugg boots, yeah, my buddy brought some back for me from Australia. Those are the best things in the world. You guys are going to make a fortune. And so we both regrouped. You know, he, he was doing the San Fernando Valley and I was doing all the coastal stuff. And we thought, oh my God, this is—we're going to be instant millionaires. You know, we we need some money. And and there's a saying in my book that is—it's really a timeless saying that says, once you start out on your path, the universe conspires to work with you. You know, and I've seen that happen many, many, many times over and over in in my businesses. And in in this context, you know, Doug and I were talking about it, and my roommate said, "Hey, there's some guys I know." At my office, they, you know, they just inherited a bunch of money. They're looking for investments. And so without even doing a business plan, we, we got 20 grand from those investors. And uh, we ended up sending $15,000 down to the factory in Australia for product. And the other five we were going to use for advertising. And uh, so anyway, the product arrived and uh, – Doug and I loaded up our vans and uh, we headed back out. He took the valley. I went down the beaches and I, I went back into the very first shop that I 
had called on before con surfboards in Santa Monica and and I walked in with the you know all the, all the boots and the order pad and I go so how many do you want he goes oh Brian good congratulations you guys are going to make a fortune but we couldn't sell them out of our store and uh I just was like crestfallen I, I went out to the next store and it's great way to go Brian congratulations but you know we just sell surfboards and shorts and sandals there's no way we could sell those in our store and this went on and on and on for a whole week, you know, as I went all the way down the coast to San Diego and Doug was going up all through the valleys and we regrouped uh, a week later and this was like November. So this was like our sales for the year and it turned out to be 28 pairs, which coincidentally was exactly a thousand dollars. And, uh, you know, <laughs> but the lesson I learned is that there, there's not a, uh, there's not a single billion dollar company, you know, on the on the New York Stock Exchange pages that did not start with a thousand dollars, and every business has to do that. And and over the years, I developed a theme, and and my whole book is is based on this theme: is that you can't give birth to adults. And every every movement, every business, every comic book, every you know whatever starts with someone conceiving it and then they take action and give birth. You know, our birth was buying samples and then it just lies there. And this is the worst part of every single startup is that it just lies there and there's no amount of shaking the cradle or overfeeding or pleading or, you know, whatever. This infant cannot get up and go to college. It has to be an infant. But pretty soon it'll become a toddler and, and that's when people are starting to take notice of your business or your product or your your service. And then, you know, that'll lead into the youth where you've got consistent sales and consistent production, consistent shipping, everything and accounting's working, you know, you know, Salesforce is doing great. That's the best stage of every business. But if it's a really, really good product or service like UG was, It'll hit the teenage phase and then all bets are off. You know, it wants to be at every party in the country and it's a super dangerous stage for every business because, <laughs> you know, you think you're on top of the world and everything is flying and money's just pouring in and you think it's never going to end and, and it's super, super dangerous phase. But eventually the administrators come and put the controls in and it becomes a mature company. So, you know, that that's one of the best things that I, I learned and I've applied that to, the you know, the, the next 15 years of UG and, you know, that I earned it and then also in all of the businesses that I've had since that you can't give birth to adults is, is just a universal theme. Right. And having a company really is like having a baby. I mean, you got to nurture it and grow it. And like you said, it has certain stages of the, comp of the life of the company. Yeah. And yeah. nobody outside of it knows what your baby's like, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you. So it's a it's a long process to convince uh -huh. them that what you have is really valuable. So how were you able to choose your founders? Well, I only had one. It was my my surfing buddy, you know, because you know, when I saw that photograph in the surf magazine, I just I just looked at him and said, "Hey, Doug, you want to go in business? We're going to be millionaires." So that was how I chose my first founder. Um, but then as company grew and and UG, you know, everyone thinks of it as a just a phenomenal success, but it had the worst of every element a business could possibly have. 
it was it was in the fashion arena which investors hate it was seasonal investors hate it it was um a real expensive product so to to buy a full run like just to get a pair of size sevens a store has to carry from five through twelves and and you know men and women are different so so you, you know they've got to put in a thousand bucks worth of product just to get a couple of sales so investors hated that um the receivables we, we were an unknown company and investors hated that so so if you look at all of these elements of Ugg, it was a, just a bitch of a product to uh, <laughs> build. And uh, because of that, we couldn't get regular bank finance. Even though we were doubling sales, you know, you know, from even up when we were got to half a million, you know, we had orders for one million for the following season. They're going, oh, it's a fad. It'll never be around next year. And I think for five or six years, um, as we grew it up to three to four to five million, the bankers and the you know the investment bankers, the angels, all oh, it's a fad. It'll never be around next year. And uh, and I had this belief of knowing how big it was in Australia, but I could not convince any of the American investors. So I was always at the whim of bringing in friends of family or acquaintances uh, for short term funding fixes, and it was always expensive money, or else I had to give up a ton of the, you know the business. So very very difficult business to finance now. If you have a product that sells 12 months of the year and it's well received and, and you've got good customers that pay you on 30 days or whatever or, or COD on, online, which is even better, then you have a, you know 90% of the problems I went through you will not have. And uh, that, that's the ideal is to get a product that's cash flowing 12 months of the year. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you come up with the name Ugg, and how important was the name in building your brand for the company? Nobody knows who started the name Ugg. There's a couple of old guys in Australia who, who claim they did it, but um, the name was pretty much generic in Australia. Like every every little town in the country had a sheepskin factory that sold Ugg boots, spelled all different ways. But in American law, you know, no, nobody had done it, brought boots here into America, and consistently stayed here. So I was the first one to register and just by being the first to prove first use and continual use, I, I've always owned the trademark and it got challenged a few times in federal court, but I always won based on that first use. Uh, and as far as the importance of it goes, I'll tell you a little story. Here, there was a time when I had all these young kids riding on the UGG surf team and then I got sued by this company, UGHS, who claimed they were here before. And I had to seriously decide, you know, if I, am I going to spend all my money on legal fees or should I just change the name? And I decided to change the name to Jackaroos, which is like an Australian cowboy. And, uh, and I went to all these kids and I said, okay, you guys now, we're, we're riding for the Team Jackaroos. And they went, no way, there's no way we're going to, that's a stupid <laughs> We have, We want to ride for UGG. And, and it showed me the power of the brand that I, I, you know, I'd only been in business five or six years at that time. And I was amazed at the passion and the power of the UGG brand. And so I decided to fight it. And thank God I did, because that, that really became the essence of what the whole fashion brand was built around. 
Now, continuing with the brand, do you think a Boots for Men will make a comeback now that Tom Brady is in the scene? It already has. Yeah, I've been following the uh, the sales. It has very much so in the Northeast, uh, and that was always a big problem for for me. Like we we eventually made it a hit with surfers, uh, and but then all the mums were buying the product for the kids at Christmas, right? So the mums discovered it. And so, and then for the girls, you know, they, they wanted it at school as well. So California was pretty well done. And then I got into the, the snowboard and the skiing market. That was relatively easy. But when I went back east, nobody's read a surfer magazine. And so they didn't have a clue. So I had to try and figure out what would work. And, and I discovered in Minnesota that, that ice hockey was the biggest, you know, that's bigger than surfing. And Every kid has to go to the rink. They have to change shoes and their mums have to sit in these 40-degree rinks watching. So it was a perfect, perfect market to switch over. So I started sponsoring, you know, pro hockey players and and uh, that was what got it kicked off. But, again, it was it was the women who started really picking up on it and uh, it was tough to get the guys to buy it because that was back when, you know, Nike and Adidas and and these guys were just in the the height of their marketing, and uh, and it, so when I sold the company, the the new company Decker's Corp took it on, and that's when they started to realize that they had to build the men's market, and Tom Brady was a natural. Now we're gonna shift back to the startup. Describe a moment during your startup that you felt like giving up. What was it that kept you going, and who and what motivated you to keep trying? Okay, the uh, there's a good story here. That I should have given up when we sold 28 pairs, right, that first year, mm-hmm. but I couldn't because I had fifteen thousand dollars and you know 480 pairs left in the warehouse, in which was my third bedroom, right? That was a the international warehouse was my third bedroom, <laughs> and so I couldn't give up. So. I started doing swap meets and, uh, you know, the, b- believe it or not, the biggest uh, sales came from opening up the back of my van at Malibu Beach because after I'd surf, I'd just throw the van open and, and bit by bit the word of mouth became so strong that I had a thriving retail business going out of the back of my van. And uh, the the word of mouth advertising was so powerful because, you know, when you put a sheepskin boot on with bare feet you know that that oh my god feeling is it's like heaven super powerful (laughs) yeah and that's what drawed people back um but the sales were like you know twenty thousand dollars the next year and so i started advertising in surf magazines i got all these you know beautiful models posed them on the rocks at wind and sea with perfect hair and perfect clothes and boots and everything and sales the next year were like 30 grand so the following year, I got better-looking models and a more expensive photographer, and you know, did them on the rocks down at Wind and Sea Beach, and and sales were thirty, thirty-five thousand, and I couldn't figure out what I'm doing wrong, you know. So I was back in uh, Chicago at a buying office called Montgomery Ward that had a big shoe retail presence in the malls, and I made my best sales pitch ever, and the guy goes, you know, Brian, why are you here? And I sort of stammered, you know, because I want to get an order for the California stores. And he just sat back in his chair and said, Brian, don't you get it? We're the elephants. We don't move till the mice are running around under our feet. And 
instantly I knew what he meant, you know, that I had to get all these specialty stores just ripping before all the malls were going to buy. And so I got back to California and, and was having a beer with a buddy down at South Coast Surf Shop. And uh, I was explaining this dilemma and he just said, oh, shut up, Brian. And he calls out the back to all these little grommets who are in the back of the shop. And he says, hey, you guys come out here. What do you think of Uggs? And every one of them came out going, oh, those Uggs are so fake, man. Have you have you seen their ads? Those <laughs> What are those? those? Those models, they can't surf. And and I went, oh, my God, it like hit me like a brick. And I've, I've been sending the wrong message with all these models to my target market, who was all these little course, course, you know, hardcore surfers. So a couple of days later, I called a buddy of mine, Pete Townend, who is a former world surf champion. He was running the National Scholastic Surf Association in Orange County. And I, and I said, hey, Pete, you, you, know, you got any young kids going to turn pro soon because I can't afford any money? And so he gave me a couple of kids and I gave them all the boots that they wanted for them and their friends and and started running ads of Mike Parsons and Ted Robinson. And instantly that, that season we started running those ads, the sales went to $400,000. And it just proved that that you have to have the right image for your market. And, and if you go back to my early ads, the, the main feature of the middle of the photo was a huge Ugg boot, right? Mm-hmm. The ads I ran... You know, I just followed these guys to Black's Beach and and uh, Trestles and just shot my with a little Canon Sure Shot. You know, I just shot these photos, and the boots were like one one fiftieth of the photo. The boots didn't even feature. But the thing is, every little kid who was reading it saw the UG logo, and they just desperately wanted to be in that photo because you know Trestles and and Blacks are the two iconic beach walks. You know. And they, they just wanted to be in it with a passion. And so the point is, if you have a great product, don't go and advertise the product. Advertise the benefit of the product like I did. The benefit for these kids was, oh, they, if they buy a pair of Ugg boots, they'll be cool like in that photo. Well, you have to make your product uh, really compelling. And if it's like a computer piece of computer software, you don't go and sell the software. You sell the guy on the golf course who's got all this spare time because of what your software did. And and so it's a really – that was when I became a really, really good marketer. That's when I realized what I was better at than most other people. And we'll talk about that a little bit later because, that, you know, there's a lesson to come out of this. If you can – you know, for me to figure out that that's what I did best and, and that's really what built the UG brand. From then on, every single ad and every single trade show piece and every single flyer we sent out – was all about wanting people to be in that image. That's brilliant. I mean, you appeal to the emotion. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't matter how dry your product is, you can find a way to make it sexy. Mm-hmm. Now, we are now entering my favorite round, the superhero round. I'm a huge fan of superheroes. We all imagine what it would be like to gain these incredible powers and the types of things we would do if we had them. So what is your entrepreneurial superpower? In other words, what is your greatest strength? That's a tough one, but I think my the reason UG and everything exists is because of my tenacity. Um, and when I start something, like it took me 10 years to graduate as an accountant, you know, for a four-year course. I refused to give up. And then when I quit and got into the UG business, 
there were so many times, so many disasters where I could have just just stopped. But I, I just have this tenacity that, no, I believe in it. I don't care how hard it is right now. I think I can overcome this obstacle and 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 I do it. And and so I would have to say that tenacity is is Brian Smith, you know, my my best strength. <laughs> well, what is your kryptonite? That's an easy one. Um and every person has an element of this. It's doubting your self-worth. In Australia when when I grew up like um, my dad was always, you know, Brian, you're a mug, you're a no hoper, you'll never be any good, you know. And I, I thought it was just me, but I remember seeing a movie called uh, Muriel's Wedding. It was an Australian movie, came out years later, and and the dad is talking to Muriel, and she's going, "Oh, you're a mug, you're a no hoper, you'll never be any good." And I, and I just, it struck me that that was just an Australianism that all parents did. And it was such a put down, and I think we've we've all carried along, uh, and even Americans. I don't doesn't matter what country you're from. You you pick up on crap like that from from society, and and you take it on. And 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 you know there, there were so many times where I get a fantastic idea, and they say, "Ah, oh, that'll never work. You're a dreamer," you know. And and so overcoming all of that negativity, and lack of self worth, and 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 identity, that's always been my biggest Achilles heel. And I think everybody shares a little bit of that as well. And Hacker Nation, I mean, this is the imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to start Uggs? Who am yeah. I to sell these sheepskin yeah. boots? Who are you to be a millionaire, Brian? You don't deserve to be a millionaire. You're a mug. You're in a, you know, that, that whole self-talk comes in. And it's a dangerous, dangerous thing to 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 let it sit there you gotta you gotta get past it every single time it brought and it'll it'll always keep coming up and you've always got to just go that's bullshit i I deserve anything Mm -hmm. now if you could have any superpower what would it be and why i would say it would be the capacity for unselfish love and i'll explain what i mean by that it's uh if you could take every action of your day as as a loving action, and I don't mean that doesn't mean you can't do business because business is all about interaction. But if each time you're trying for the best possible outcome for everybody, and you know that even though you you take the action for the best good of everybody, some people won't interpret it that way. They'll rip you off, or they'll shortcut, or they'll they'll find a way to pervert it or just disturb it. But as long as you, as long as I have that 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 knowing that look, I'm doing the best I can for the best for everybody, then you end up not being so affected by all the pricks out there that 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 get in your face or don't, you know, they, they, they you know, somehow you just begin avoiding them because there's a sort of a sense of a radar or something comes in that that you start finding people who are like you to deal with. Now, having said that, I'm probably 20% the way there to having complete unselfish love. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's my goal. And when I do get in that mode, I find my life is really, really good. Now, we are now answering the final questions of the interview. And these are really the tools that Brian would recommend that would help our listeners rise to their feet and get started. So share an internet resource or an app that you use daily and would recommend to our listeners. Okay, I'm, you know, I'm in my 60s, so I I grew up 
I remember when the internet came on board and, and I had a secretary who took shorthand and I said to her one day, I'll never need to learn emails because I've got you. You know, you can type all my letters. And and look what, you know, how ridiculous that is in today's life. Well, I'm having the same problem with all these apps and internet, you know, Twitter, Facebook, all of that. I'm on them all, but I don't really understand why I am, because. but everybody tells me I have to be. So I don't really have any tip for anybody uh, on uh, a resource or an app that's, that's you know, technology related. I, I've got one foot in the old school and one foot in the new, um, and there's a lot better people for to, to ask about <laughs> recommending apps, you know. So what is one book that you recommend? Oh, without doubt, the, the, the Bible for, and this is not just business, but this is the Bible for life, is Think and Grow Rich. And uh, there's a follow that was Napoleon Hill, obviously, and that that's timeless. That that book came out in the 30s or 40s, and uh, the principles are, are just as valid today as they were when they came out. And there's another book though that just got published uh, by Napoleon Hill, and he could not publish this for 50 years because had he done so, he would have just been blackballed by you know religions and you know, the establishment, but this new book that's just out is called Outwitting the Devil, and he wrote it, you know, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, but never published it until just recently. So that, to me, the between those two books, you know, Think and Grow Rich and Outwitting the Devil, you can get a really, really good grip on how to live a good life. Those are great books. I read both of them. Good. So what would you dare to dream if you knew that you could not fail? Just, just to have a happy life, you know, and and I'm tr doing that right now. And and if you could not fail, that's sort of a, I mean, <laughs> the, <laughs> the whole reason is the journey. So if you knew you couldn't fail, it'd be pretty damn boring because you're just going through the motions. Um, I think the potential of failure is is uh, is what drives most people, and that's where the the fun and the action is. In fact. From my book, there's these four statements that I learned, and, and I'm not going to go into you know how desperate things were in the business when I discovered these truths. But from a book of philosophy I, I found 30 years ago, I, there were four statements. Um, one is feast upon uncertainty, and the next one is fatten upon disappointment. The next one is enthuse over apparent defeat because defeat's never real defeat's just a thought until the day you give up and then it becomes real but until if you keep trying defeat is, isn't even a word and the last one is invigorating the presence of difficulties and all these four statements are super positive and they're, they're in my book as a, as a sort of a, a takeaway um, because there it takes away the victimization syndrome of oh poor me why did this happen to me and it puts it, you know, feast upon uncertainty. Well, shit, there was year after year after year in the UG business, I never knew if I'd be around. And uh, that that comes across in my book because everyone who tells me they read it, they go, oh, my God, I couldn't put it down. And and that's because they're never sure I was going to be around in the next chapter. Uh, so those statements, you know, fatten upon disappointment, invigorating the presence of difficulties, they're all just key sort of lessons in life on on how to um have a happy life 
and Hacker Nation, all of this will be in the show notes page. So for people who want to start up their own businesses, what would be one key piece of advice that you would give? Okay. I've given a lot of thought to this, and, and I even before I even came to America, I got the answer, but I didn't ever know how to implement the answer until I figured out that I was really good at marketing. And this is a, a buddy of mine said to me, Brian, just find out what you're better than most other people at and then do it. And it took me years to figure out what the hell he meant. But I, I'll give you an example to uh, that'll help you. Okay. Um, I heard this story about a, a book club, and this woman was in the book club, and and each Friday night, the you know the leader of the club would say, "Well, what do you want to write about?" It was like an authors authors club. And she'd go, I don't know. And next Friday, well, what do you want to write about? Oh, I don't know. And this went on for a couple of weeks. And so one night after the meeting, they were walking out together and the the leader of the thing picked up a piece of tile off the ground, just a broken piece of tile, and said, by next Friday, I want a paper on this piece of tile. And, you know, that's sort of when I would have quit the book club. But um, she didn't. She she started figuring out, well, where does tile come from? And she figured out it's from, from precast concrete yards. So she went to the local precast concrete yard near her where she lived and said, you know, do you make this tile? And they go, oh, no, that's made by the factory over on the other side of town. And she was amazed. You know, how the hell can you tell from this scrap? Where? And he says, well, look at the sands and the coloration. And, and yeah, that's definitely from that. So so the next day she went over to the other factory and, and told her what she was doing and and they gave her a tour of the uh, facility, you know, where all, the, where all the gravels piles come from and the conveyor belts that take it up into these big mixing tanks and all the cement and the fly ash and all the additives. And then she took them over to the pigmentation side where they put the colors in and she saw then exactly why this other group knew where it came from because these were all unique colors. And... Uh, she went down and saw them, you know, pour it into the molds and, and saw the baking ovens and saw the finished tile at the other end, you know. And she went, oh, my God, what a fascinating process. So the next Friday night she had a, a paper describing the, the, the complete uh, manufacture of tile. and But she didn't stop there. She was so fascinated. She started researching tile throughout history and also throughout the world and she uh, started you know finding books in museums about you know the ancient Persian cultures and all of the the tile work that was around all of the minarets and and stuff in Persia and and uh, you know primitive tile in in uh, Europe you know European countries and and tiles that were from South America and anyway bottom line is a couple of years later, she had a best-selling book, uh, which was a huge coffee table book full of all of these uh, beautiful photographs of tile throughout history and from all over the world. And the point is, she became better than anybody else at knowing about tile. And and that's just a perfect illustration of you, you people starting out. You know, I, I've coached a girl who... who all she could think of was I make better granola than anybody else. And, and now she's been running a business for seven or eight years, paid off her cars, you know, paid, got a house, 
from granola selling it at, at farmers markets. So it doesn't matter what it is, if you can figure out what you can do better than anybody else and do it, then and do it for the love and the passion of it, not for the money, then the money will somehow find its way to you. And that's really what it is. I mean, you just got to focus on one thing and just be the best at that's it. That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it was years years later. I figured out I was a re really good at advertising and marketing, and then I was able to, you know, really take it to another level. And that's why UG became as big as it did. I I just figured out how to make people want to be in those ads. And uh, so yeah, everyone's got some sort of skill inside them that you just got to figure out what it is. Fascinating. Now, before we say goodbye, I mean, what's the best way that we could follow you? Like, how do we know more about Brian Smith? Sure, I've got a website, which is briansmithspeaker.com. And I can be contacted through that. And that also has a link to my book, which is The Birth of a Brand. And that's available on Amazon. The subtitle of that book is launching your your um, entrepreneurial passion and soul. So it's like a it's like a how to start a business, but it's based on the UG story and it goes from every single disaster that I've <laughs> that I could write about <laughs> and all the incredible highs and you know the 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 karma that came back and and just you know made it go through the roof like getting on Oprah and. Uh, you know, USA Today, just things that I did eventually when I figured out what marketing was all about. So it's a, it's like a call to action for entrepreneurs and also a roadmap. Uh, so it's, it's a really, really valuable book for, for uh, helping you if you are going to be in the entrepreneurial world. So just grab it on Amazon. Perfect. So thank you, Brian, for being a guest on my show. We appreciate your time and wisdom. But here at Startup Life Hacks, we have a saying to help motivate our listeners who are on this entrepreneurial journey, that it's okay to fail and it's okay to struggle. So let's close by reminding Hacker Nation what our motto is and say it with extreme enthusiasm. Okay, well, this is my mantra. It couldn't be better for me. It's stay positive and keep grinding. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. Way to go. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for joining me today on Startup Life Hacks. To see how to get in touch with Brian as well as the resources he recommended, navigate over to our show notes page at startuplifehacks.com slash Brian Smith. But before we close, I'd like to go over some key takeaways and lessons learned from this interview. You can't give birth to adults. There are different stages of a business, just as how there are different stages in human development from infancy to adulthood. Each stage needs proper intention from you, the business owner. And it's up to you where you want the direction of the business to grow. Brian and I had a short talk after the interview. He asked me how many downloads I was getting. At the time of the interview, I had just launched a week prior and I had 300 total downloads. Big whoop, right? And then he said, That is amazing. And you know what? Your 300 was my 28. That statement alone inspired me to keep moving forward. Keep moving forward, Hacker Nation. Let me know what you think about this comment, what it means to you, and I'd also like to extend my invite to a special opportunity for you to win some Beats Solo 2 headphones during this launch period of Startup Life Hacks. This offer only lasts until October 5th, so it's better to act now. All you need to do is go to iTunes, subscribe, and rate and review. That's it! 
I'll be choosing a random winner and I will be announcing it on my website at startuplifehacks.com. And as always, stay positive and keep grinding.